Welcome to the Ready Eddy Podcast, where we tell the story of startups in the outdoor sport industry through the voice of their founders. What's going on, guys? Before we get into today's podcast episode, I wanted to give you a quick update on the Ready Eddy membership program. To this point, we've grown to have thousands of products from up-and-coming startups and small businesses in the outdoor travel and lifestyle space on the platform. You can save up to 50% off all of these products, anything from skis to jackets to food bars to supplements. Anything you could think of to support your outdoor activities is on the platform from small up-and-coming brands. It's a great opportunity to support small businesses while also discovering brands that you've never heard of. You can show off the new gear to your friends and also save a ton while doing it. If you're interested in checking it out, head over to readyeddy.com slash members to get your first month free. This podcast episode is brought to you by 14th Star Brewing Co. 14th Star is a veteran-owned Vermont craft brewery on a mission to brew world-class beer while enriching their community. We are partnering with 14th Star while we spend February and March in Vermont highlighting local makers. Not only does 14th Star make great beer, like their maple oatmeal stout, yes I said maple, but they also have a very strong mission to give back to their community and support fellow veterans. 14th Star believes that every person and business has an obligation to give back to try and make the world a better place. If you're in the Northeast, definitely keep an eye out for 14th Star Brewing Co. What is going on, Ready Eddie Podcast listeners? Josh Savo here, your host. On today's episode, I am sitting down with the founder of Lives in Designs, uh, Andrew Gibbs Dabney. Andrew, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. No problem, man. It's been a pleasure so far. I'm happy to get started. Definitely. So, for the listener that's never heard of Lives in Designs, how would you best describe it to them? Let's see. So the way this to people that haven't heard, you know, don't, don't know me, don't know the business is that, you know, lives and designs focuses on creating durable clothing for people who want to own less experience more and spend more time outside. So it's outdoor clothing for people who really are into a more simplified way of living. And then want to know that their products they're buying are one high quality two that they actually enjoy them and uh, bought them for a purpose and three that that yeah, company they buy from, you know, i.e. us is going to stay behind them with a really solid lifetime warranty. Interesting. So give me a little bit of background about yourself. Uh, where did you grow up and how did you get involved in the outdoors and then what led you to starting um, Lives In? Sure. So I'm from Arkansas. I grew up in the Ozark Mountains in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And, uh, you know, without getting, before we get too much into the path of my, you know, professional life, like, yeah, I grew up in the woods, basically. We, you know, we're in a area full of hollows, bluffs, rivers, streams. You know, I grew up, you know, fishing and hunting with some of my family. And then, you know, quickly just changed that and do camping and hiking and really exploring things like the Ozark Highlands Trail uh, through high school. My main recreational activity was to go. Uh, whitewater canoeing you know i grew up near the buffalo river which was the first national first river protected just for simply for its beauty and so that's kind of our that's our backyard and so i grew up in that environment really learning to appreciate the outdoors and what it can really do not only for your health but for your mental health and and people around you so um i went to uh, the university of arkansas 
And then I ended up graduating from a school called John Brown University um, with a degree in organizational management. Not that anybody really cares about all that. I, my, you know, kind of path into the, to where I am now was I started working part-time in a warehouse at a company called Fayette Chill Clothing Company, which was a, uh, or it still is, you know, a lifestyle-based outdoor-inspired clothing company. And so that was my first dip into that experience set over the course of about five years. I worked through, I wore about every hat you can, working through our online e-commerce, our fulfillment, our hiring. And then I ended up being the COO of the company and then the CEO for a year and a half. And then uh, before I left that company and really got to see, you know, had six outdoor retailers under my belt and had a lot of conversations, really got to know and really develop a deep love and appreciation for the outdoor industry and the people in it and what it stands for, really. Sounds like you've had a nice uh, long journey <laughs> so far, at least specifically in the outdoor space. You're not a stranger to building a business or at least getting it out there and helping grow it. Um, so when did the idea for Lives In start? And, um, you know, I guess what made you decide to fully pursue it? Yeah, uh, good question. So the, really the idea was... Uh, probably latent for a long time, you know, it was there, but it really started out of a desire to simplify my life and reduce the things that I own. I think like a lot of people, I looked around and realized that, you know, even though I thought I was a you know, conscious consumer, my closet was packed full, you know, I had stuff everywhere and I started down a personal journey of simplifying those things, really figuring out through that process, what was important to me and what I owned that I really wanted to take care of. And then the, you know, the, the, the decision to move forward with this company was based on one, a passion for product design uh, and really specifically apparel. I, you know, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say that I love, you know, clothing and I really love, you know, exploring good, you know, uh, seeing what the way, you know, really good clothing is made and how that's put together. So I wanted to go against this tide of really mass produced cheap goods that, I don't need to really build a case to anybody listening to this that seems to be everywhere in the world and instead concentrate on building clothing using, you know, classically proven methods, good construction methods, not, not innovative there using what's tried and true, mixing that with really good style, taking in outdoor industry, uh, you know, features, things that we all know and love from more technical goods. And then basically proving a point that we can build a brand that makes good products that aren't made with plan, you know, with planned obsolescence and the way we prove that, you know, what's really important to me is with a lifetime repair and replacement product, you know, policy that comes along with it. Not only are we going to build it as strong as we can from the beginning, but we're going to stand behind it. And if it fails on you, we're going to figure out a way to make it right. We don't want you to throw that thing in the landfill. We want you to repair it multiple times before it goes that way. If that's the kind of life you choose to live. So got a little bit deeper there, but I mean, you know, the, the desire is there and, and the, the philosophy of, of my own personal life and kind of where I see where I want to make an impact on this industry and kind of what conversations I want to lead. And then, you know, where I want to spend my life. I spent a very brief stint after my last job at, at a tech company and I went to San Francisco and pitched a demo day and, you know, saw the back end of that industry. And whereas the back end of the outdoor industry is talking about work-life balance and women in the workplace and getting outside more and environmental sustainability, the tech industry's back end is about as far to the other side of that as you could, you could go. And I, I realized that if I was going to, you know, dictate where my life went as much as I possibly could, 
I'm going to put myself in the industry that, that talks about the things that I care about and value the most. Definitely. Well, I, I, uh, I think that's a definitely noble uh, cause behind starting a business. Um, now, I want to talk about the first two products because you really have the, the wool fleece and the flex canvas pants. Those are sort of the flagship products that you've launched with. Um, what made you decide to start with those two? And what was the prototyping process in getting those two products to where you have them now, um, where you're talking about, you know, offering a high quality product that's going to last as long as possible, um, you know, with the highest grade materials. Sure. Um, let me see where to start on that. Well, so the very first product, well, I have, uh, when I first started this process, started out with about eight sketches of eight products that, you know, if I was going to, with this idea of like, I'm going to design the things that I want that I can't find in the market. Uh, after going through that process, I really whittled it down to what are the products that, you know, I feel like we can make an impact and that don't exist already. It's, it's really important to me, you know, for a lot of reasons, but more personally that I don't make something that, or that we don't make something that already exists in that same form. So you can whittle it down from there and say, where can we make an impact? Where can we make a product that has unique features uh, or, you know, features put together in a, in a, in a way that aren't out there. So we're not just creating something that already, that doesn't need to be created. And then to kind of get into the second part of that question, which is how we go about doing that. So I sketch, I draw, um, I get feedback from people around me. We sketch that again. Um, eventually that makes it into basically a digital flat is what it's called. You know, so it's, a, it's on, a, uh, you know, in, in design it's made and then we can tweak it from there. And we really, so that's when we start looking at like things like pocket placement, pocket design, for example, on the flex canvas pants, we kind of have a hybrid. We've got a, a Chino style front pockets and a five pocket denim style rear pockets. And on paper, we were like, yeah, you know, that, that, that's the functional pockets we want. Let's, you know, we have to make those decisions there. Um, pocket placement, fit, feature set, uh, designs of things like the gusset on the crotch and the articulation points on the knees, really putting out a theory, right? And so the cool thing about this industry and what's awesome is you get to see that theory come to life because, you know, we, uh, after we source our factory and, our, and, and have an idea of what kind of fabric we want. We get that first, it's called a first proto for the first prototype of, of what we're going to make. And it's basically for fit and construction, testing those theories we had. Uh, does the fit work? Does it look good? Is it, does it, can you put it over your, you know, the very first one we got, I could barely fit into because it made it too small. So that's an obvious edit. Right. And then, um, Things like the uh, articulation points, we realized that we had them kind of shaped a little bit weird and they were too long. So we, we moved those things down. Those are the kind of decisions you make early, the big ones. And then you go through a second proto, um, those, all those edits come back. It's getting pretty close to the final product, right? Like, you know, you sort of, well, let me rephrase that. It starts to look a lot more like what's in my head. Um, at that point, we make, you know, much more refined tweaks to things like fit and placement, pocket size, uh, like the pocket depth is really important to me, especially when you're carrying around a smartphone in your pocket. If it's not deep enough, you lift your leg up and then that phone hits you in the hip. You know, I don't know if anybody's had that experience, but it's just you try to get in your truck, your car, and it kind of hits you. Those things are what I start to look into at that point. And then we really get into the next prototype comes in with the fabric that it's going to be made in finally, which we spend, I spent, I kind of glossed over this, but I spent a lot of time 
looking at fabrics and the way that works is, you know, I have an idea of a, a fabric content direction uh, and kind of a characteristic. So with these, I knew that I wanted it to be a cotton based fabric and I know, you know, cotton kills, right. If it's cold and wet, but for the majority of the time that you're wearing you know, pants, in my experience in most of our lives, you know, you get something that drapes, right. Looks good. Creases. Also one of my biggest pet peeves with most of my pants is they have little tiny holes all over them from sitting by a campfire, um, and melting little holes in my, in my polyester and nylon pants. That was a, that was a big driver for me and uh, why we chose this route. So that fabric, we finally get to see like what felt great in a six by six inch swatch. And we, you know, make a judgment call there. Like, you know, you can kind of extrapolate that. We get to finally feel it on, on your body. You know, I get to get the pants and say, Hey, does this fabric actually work? And sometimes in this process, it doesn't. And we have to go back and say, okay, wait, you know, we need to resource this fabric or it came in too thin, you know, thickness and kind of weight and hand is hard to judge when you're feeling it in your fingers versus on your body. Luckily with the, with the flex canvas pants and with the, and with the, uh, the high wool fleece, it, it really felt great. Um, it really was one of those situations that doesn't always happen where I got it. And it was just so pleased with it. Um, I know this is a little bit of a long answer, but, and it gets granular, but, and then we go into just to make sure that it works. I, I wear those things each time. Every one of those samples, the factory keeps one set. I get one. And so I wear each one of those samples and make sure that it fits and make sure that it functions. That's where the, you know, I wanted to make sure the flex canvas pants flexed. Right. And they do like that 2% spandex doesn't sound of a lot like a lot, but you get full range of motion from it. And that was good to vet I get to wear them uh, outside. I get to wear them to work. I get to wear them around the house and really know if it's going to work and perform the way we think. And then the, yeah, the last step, which is very crucial and what a lot of, in, in my experience doesn't happen a lot is we go to a full size set. So we get every other size from the smallest to the largest of the thing of the, of the piece and make sure that scale works correctly. You kind of set the industry runs on some general sizing scales, uh, but they're not always perfect and they don't always apply perfectly to each piece. So at that point I find someone skinnier than me, someone bigger than me and someone way bigger than me (laughs) and put them on those people and say, Hey, how does this fit? What do you think? You know, did this scale right? You know, is a 14%, you know, per size expansion in the, in this particular measurement, right? Or does it end up looking a little bit funny? You can't tell that kind of stuff on paper. So we go all the way through that. And then the very last step is what they call pre-production, where this is the most fun one. It comes in, it's got your, it's got the lives and logo on it. It's got my, you know, weathered tin shank that I handpicked for the, for the top button. It's got the YKK, uh, you know, Vizlon zippers, it's got the button, you know, the roll-up system, it's got the 3M reflective tape on it, you know, all the stuff that throughout those previous processes sometimes use placeholders, like, you know, a placeholder button that's not exactly yours, but, you know, you don't have yours yet. That's when you see it, that final product and what it's actually going to look like. And it's your very last chance to say, you know, here's another tweak. At that point, you can't really say I'm changing the fabric. You could, but you'd be delaying everything. You can say, oh, wow, we need one more extra stitch here and that actually that exact thing happened we have a little hidden pocket inside the front left pocket that you can't see from the outside with a hidden zipper and it was the only place on the pants that had a single needle stitch and we did that because then it you know it's kind of hidden right you don't want to see the stitches but i made it call at that last minute say hey we need a double needle that it doesn't make me feel comfortable that we have a zipper in there that's only single needle stitch even if it is a small hidden zipper it needs to be burly too i don't want to have a weak spot there um 
and then you know i talk more about the pants but you know the, all this stuff happened with the uh, and it's the high wool fleece the reason that's named that and you know i don't want to get off track too much the reason it's named that is because it's polar tech high uh, high loft body which is a, a recycled polyester high loft very breathable body with a, a polar tech power wool panels so it's a merino wool interior panel under the arms that has a 20 percent spandex so that it stretches and is antimicrobial well, wow, sounds like it only took you like a couple of weeks to figure all this out, right? <laughs> no, this took about eight. That was an eight month process, basically. Yeah, and and it could have gone faster, but uh, I don't want to belabor the point. But this is you know, this is our product, and this is where I spend my time the most because this is where we got to hang our hat on. Like there were things. So for me, you know, I look at the places where pants fail. So my biggest pet peeve is what I put on a pair of pants, and I put my hand in the pocket and kind of push down. You hear stitches popping where the pocket is kind of popping away from the outseam because it's just sewn there. Right. So we put a double bar tack in that spot to keep that from happening. The little holes that appear at the top corners of your back pockets on blue jeans and pants, you know, from the stress right there, we decided to put an extra layer of our flex canvas fabric behind on the inside of the pockets and a double needle stitch that right there so that that couldn't happen. Or at least it could, it could stave off that, uh, that particular wear point for a long time and things like that. Like those are the small tweaks that it's really hard on paper to do from the very beginning. It takes time of testing and thinking about it and wearing it and looking at it and kind of obsessing over it before you get that right. Right. That's really interesting. Now, obviously, like you, you went through a pretty rigorous process and prototyping and, and getting the pants and, and, the fleece where you want it to be in terms of quality and functionality. Um, what was it like picking a manufacturer and then also like making sure that um, the partner that you pick uh, had sustainability in mind when making, you know, your products. Cause like you said, like one of your main missions is making products that last longer in a more sustainable way. Sure. Um, that one's difficult, really. I mean, they're, they're, the, the nice thing is that and I'll, I'll preface this with saying that we have vetted. I actually asked for uh, factory photos and I really wanted to know who was who was making the product and, and kind of what their story was, if for lack of a better word. And then we're working with a, uh, a third party here to source these factories and kind of get us in the door. Because that's one thing I know you, a lot of people that are entrepreneurs listen to this is that this is an overstatement and an oversimplification and there are exceptions to this caveat, but a lot of times the factor that's going to take your job as you know, someone that doesn't have a track record and a brand, that's not one of the you know recognizable names is not the factory you want to be making your products. Right. So we uh, hired a third party that has you know, sourcing partners that says, Hey, we can vouch for this company. You know, we're, we're going to, they're going to be on top. They're going to pay. And uh, we get you get us into the doors of factories that typically wouldn't be available to a first time startup clothing company. Um, and then at that point, we vetted three different factories um, from two different countries and had a first proto made, um, not all for the pants, but for different products. And pretty quickly, we were able to see who was responsive. Uh, who didn't go lights out, who sent us a first proto that looked like they actually read the tech pack, which the tech pack is basically the, you know, kind of 15, 20 page blueprint of how to make the product, um, who read it and who skimmed it. And this factory that, that we're using right now, not only read it, they sent back our first proto with their own recommendations on how to make it better. 
and it came back in two weeks. <laughs> and then when I was talking to our production company and said, Hey, you know, like it's really, you know, it's very important to me and it's going to be very important to our customers. The factory, you know, is a good member of their community. They have sustainability in mind that they're, that they treat their employees. Right. And so I was uh, told and assured by people I trust, you know, this pre- that this factory has a you know very low turnover rate that the, the same you know, faces that, that this, you know, our agent has seen for his whole career, are pretty much the same faces still there you know and that's why their quality is so good because they have experienced people on hand and that there's a lot you can kind of glean from that is that a company has and this is just in general if a company has a low turnover rate and keeps their employees for a long time they're probably going to have a better product um and these people have been there for a long time and they're experienced and they know how to work there but what that means is they haven't had a reason to leave you know we're make our products in vietnam and while it's not the same you know economic level is the United States. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a third world country and they have options. And if they're still there, it's because they believe in them where they're at and they get paid well and they get treated fairly. And that's really important to me. That's really the, cool. the, the other thing is too, you can kind of, I mean, you can kind of follow in the footsteps of Patagonia and other companies and read their reports. They bet a lot of places. Now, a lot of those factories are not going to take your business, but that's another way you can, you can kind of hack this is figure out who's already gone out with their, with their, uh, audit team you know and get in there and, and kind of use use you know stand on the shoulders of giants right that which is which is kind of always the best practice is you know see what you can do to 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 move ahead in a in a way that you can trust hey everyone just a quick thank you to our sponsor who helps make the ready Eddie podcast possible sideline swap Being an outdoorsy person usually means that you buy and accrue a silly amount of gear to support your activities. As time goes by and you get new gear, why not sell your old gear to help cover the cost of that new gear? This is where Sideline Swap comes in. You can post your skis, snowboard, or any outerwear in a couple minutes and make back some of the money that you spent on that gear. Not to mention, if you're trying to get a loved one or friend into skiing or riding, which we all know is expensive, you can find awesome gear on sidelineswap.com for a great deal. Some products are even up to 70% off. For more info, you can head over to sidelineswap.com. I think that's really smart. Now, I, I want to talk about the Kickstarter. So that, that kind of really catapulted the business and started things um, this year. You raised close to $80,000 for the campaign. Um, what made you decide to go that route? And what really can, do you think contributed to it being such a successful campaign? Yeah, well, there's two things there, which is, you know, what made us go that route. And to me, it was obvious, you know, this wasn't an, an option well, I mean, okay, let me rephrase that. It was an option five years ago, but it wasn't a proven option. And and so, you know, as I was going through this business saying, hey, how am I going to finance this? How am I going to get it started? Um, it was pretty clear to me that Kickstarter was a very unique way of going about that. Um, we weren't around, right? So before we did the Kickstarter, we popped, you know, we had our social media up and we started building an email list and, and uh, probably uncharacteristic from a lot of companies that start, you know, I put out our mission and values and our production principles first before we ever put out any inkling of what our product would look like to try to bring in people that believe what we believe, which worked, you know, we say, Hey, this is how we think we should design. This is the kind of company we want to be. And if you, if you're into that, you know, follow us and maybe you'll like what we make. I think you'll be good. Let me rephrase that. I think you'll like what we make. Um, so when it came time to do, 
the, the initial, we could go traditional way, which is somehow finance everything and, uh, try to, you know, go to trade shows and spend a lot of money and, and, you know, try to convince a lot of people that make the decisions that were something worth taking a bet on and, and, and wait another year before we could get it in stores, or we could go directly to our consumer and say, Hey, we're here. These are our products. We want you to make a call. Do you trust us? Do you think the products are good? And if you do, we'll make it. If you don't, then we've got to go back to the drawing board, which that's scary. Uh, about the biggest feedback I got in the planning of this was that's risky. And I was like, I know it's risky, but if it, if it doesn't work, isn't that telling? If it doesn't work, we should probably stop. And it did work. Um, so that was amazing. And we were able to go out there and show the world, you know, with an asterisk on it, the Kickstarter world, what we were about. And we got a, we got a really good response to it. And that was, it's just been incredible. Like, you know, we've, we've got 511 people who agreed to give us a chance. And I think they're going to be happy with what happens. Isn't it such a good feeling once you've, after you've spent a ton of time thinking, working, and, you know, really bringing the business into existence and then having people sort of validate it. You're just like, Oh, phew, I'm not crazy. <laughs> yeah, no, it, I mean, other than that, being extremely stressful at the very beginning. Yeah. It feels amazing. Right. And it, it, it's helped us in a lot of ways. Um, we don't plan on always being a, you know, quote unquote Kickstarter company. Um, but just to, we talked about this a little bit before, but you know, we are a branded, consumer products company if you were to put us in the most generic label and we just got accepted into the tech stars accelerator uh, which accepts less than one percent of applications to come down to austin for three months and and really put your business through boot camp and and uh, help you get you know mentors advisors partnerships and and we're in our first week of that right now and i don't think we'd be here right now if we didn't have that validation of our idea and our product on Kickstarter. So that's just an intangible, right? Like we didn't do that with this in mind. Uh, we did it to fund our production and, and let people know we exist, but now we're here and we have opportunities that are just, I mean, incredible. I'm not exactly sure which way we're going to uh, take advantage of those yet, but we have the ability to be in a network that is hugely uh, beneficial. Did you always know you wanted to try and be a part of an accelerator or did it just kind of happen over time? The latter, it just kind of happened. Um, I am close with a group called startup junkie in our, in our hometown that is a uh, you know, government funded mostly to be a free startup organization, you know, to help get things like a business plan and, you know, introduction to financing and, and uh, um, really, get a business off the ground, figure out how to make an, an LLC and get it registered and, and uh, make sure you get your trademark done. Right. And so I was, I was familiar with them. They're good friends of mine from my previous company or the previous company I worked at and they helped me with this one. So I was familiar with accelerators. Um, typically it's a tech-based ecosystem and this is no exception. Like we're in a tech-based ecosystem, but they saw something in us that is that we can, I'm not going to try to speak for what they saw in us, but they just saw something in us to let us, you know, let us into this and, and say, Hey, we think you, you have something here and we're going to help you do it, uh, tech or not, which makes me, you know, extremely humbled and, and, and really happy. So no, it wasn't in our cards, uh, from the very beginning. And that kind of shows you that a strategic plan or a business plan or 
you know, a best laid plan, quote unquote, is almost always wrong. Right? <laughs> always. I didn't know we were going to be always here. Or, yeah, I mean, no, let me rephrase it. Not almost always. It is always. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they told us the very first thing we came here, they're like, okay, write down your revenue formula, which I won't get into what that is. People can Google it. It's not a revenue model, but write down your revenue formula. And they're like, the only rule is that you can know right now is that it's wrong. Like the way you think you're going to, your company is going to make money is not the way that it's going to. Uh, so like there's there's a lot of rules like that um what's your business plan it's going to be wrong what's your financial plan it's going to be wrong but the really important part is that you do the plan and you kind of have a direction and then you're able to stay nimble as you go and ideally take advantages of opportunities as they come if they're the right ones yeah no it's so true you you need a map you need a roadmap, but at the same time you also got to be okay with the fact that it's going to change and don't hold on too long to the original idea because if you do you might screw everything up <laughs> Sure. Yeah. I've learned some of those lessons as we get, as we've gone. Yeah. Now. Okay. So what would you say has been the hardest part about starting and building uh, lives in? Man, it's been the most recent thing. Uh, to be honest, it's the hardest part that I'm, you know, I've dealt with and I'm I'm a lay in week one of it is, you know, I'm in Austin. My wife's back in Fayetteville. Um, my two dogs, like, you know, I'm gonna be here for three months away from my family and, and, you know, my wife and my home and my home trails. And, uh, but I'm, you know, I, we, we've obviously had, you know, very open conversations about this and we have an understanding and it, we, you know, I believe that it's going to be the best thing for the business and not only for the business, but for, for our life. But so far it's been this, you know, and it, it's one of those things that's a, the hardest part, but also, you know, potentially the biggest blessing so there's been a million small things but that's the hardest it's kind of funny how that happens great opportunities always require some sort of sacrifice yeah for sure what would you say is your greatest fear and how do you manage it in regards to the business man uh i thought about this for 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 a while when you know i was looking at this question and there's small things, you know, that pertain to my particular business, but that's not my greatest fear. My greatest fear is that we're going to destroy the planet that we're on. And I know that sounds, you know, like a, uh, an easy out answer, but it's not, I mean, that's what the, the motivation behind this is. It's not necessarily that we're going to make ourselves the biggest impact, but we want to be a part of this culture of just, you know, not mindless consumerism that, that we're not saying that if you're going to buy pants that you buy lives and pants only, but we are saying that if you buy lives and pants that you really want them and need them and you're prepared to take care of them and, and, and ask us to help in that and be part of a movement. But I mean, once again, I'm not trying to say that we're, you know, we're going to change the world, but I, you know, that is my biggest fear is that uh, whether we move to recycled organic uh, blue sign, which we, we are, but I mean like we as a society, that doesn't really help it if we're buying 15 pairs of pants a year and throwing them away. I mean, the average male in this country wears 10% of their wardrobe. You know, the average person buys 60% more than they did 10 years ago and throws it away or keeps it half as long and then throws away 70 pounds of clothing a year. It doesn't matter what we do from an environmental you know, material standpoint. If we keep making <laughs> stuff at this rate, we're going to, we're not going to have anywhere to go. I don't know if your listeners have kind of just, just Google what happens to your recycling and kind of the recycling industry right now. China is turning it back. You can throw it in the recycling bin, but a lot of times it's spinning around in the ocean on a, on a boat because no one will take it at port. 
so there's there's big problems and and you know a reduction in consumption is one of the easiest paths doesn't matter what you consume you know try to consume it a little less <laughs> sorry you know, no no i think it's out really there, important it's point that, that to bring it's up. on my mind and i think for anyone who is an outdoor enthusiast it has to be sort of front and center really just anyone who lives on the planet right because it affects literally everyone regardless of your status or sure and graphic location right yeah not to go too off on this and that's you did touch on something is it affects everybody and that there is a uh, you know this is a whole nother podcast topic potentially but you know what we're saying is somewhat of a uh can be construed as a uh elitist i guess is the worst way to put it i don't know uh but you know the we're in a spot where we can say we want to make conscious consumers not everybody can do that and i understand that um and there's things that that we can do the night the positive stand on that is that like you know we're in an industry that is uh you know somewhat expensive to get into and i don't mean that i mean just outdoor recreation even though it's it's literally using a free resource the what goes in hands with it is that you know it's a rich white person's place right and i don't you know that's not necessarily true across the board but that brings me to something that has been on my mind a lot is like you know we have to charge a price to make a good product and we have to charge a price to stand behind it what can we do as well to lower the barrier to entry to an outdoor recreation mindset to people that are not necessarily the target demographic of our industry and that's been on my mind a lot i don't have the solution it's just you know we understand this maybe in our industry in general, but like us as outdoor recreation people is a small group of the world. And so part of that, I think is really trying to lower the bar and get people into uh, recreation. It's based on the natural world. And, you know, part of that is we want to, our nonprofit support side is, is really focused on things that, you know, help get children outside because if you cultivate that, you know, love of nature and outdoors as a recreation point, then you're going to do everything you can to preserve the outdoors. You know, if you, if you're only spending your time inside or on technology, then it's really not that convincing to say, we need to save the earth. You can just say, I'll put on a mask. (laughs) I'll stay inside in my air conditioning. So I did, we went sideways there, but no, no, um, I I like it. It's on my head. It's funny because this is something that I like, I've been grappling with a lot lately, especially since like the, the activity that got me into the outdoors is skiing, which is one of the most expensive sports out there <laughs> sure yeah you know what i mean and, I, and the only reason i was able to do it growing up is because i, I come from an um, upper middle class family you know what i mean and i've always felt guilty about the fact that like the outdoors is something that like people who have extra time and you know surplus income to participate in those sorts of things where it's just like a heightened level of like um uh, just standard of living you know what i mean and like you're saying it's just mm-hmm. you, gotta, you get we need to figure out a way to make it available to everyone and then also talk about the environment and just work towards making, you know, a more sustainable society, especially the U S because we're such a consumer driven society where it's just buy more, buy more, buy more, you know, like the black Friday kind of mentality where it's just like, how many units did you move? You know? Yeah. Well, put the, to, just to, you know, switch to a, a positive note. I mean, you know, you speak, you know, we're in the United States. Uh, we have, a ridiculous amount of protected land that true, I mean, true, very true that it may be being chipped away at a little bit, but we've got a resource here and that's not going anywhere. And that's my biggest, like when I talk to people about this business, it's like, look, we're, 
we're diving into a space that not only is growing from like a, a, a revenue and you know market size perspective, we're diving into a space that relies on a, on a place that we've already had. Like we have this land, the land is free. It's up to us to take care of it and to get people in it. But that's, I guess what I'm saying is like lowering the barrier to entry is basically just saying, Hey, we have this, it's right here. You don't, you know, necessarily need to go skiing to enjoy it. And we've got a perfect opportunity to really get out there. And then the other thing is too, it seems like the net to me, the natural antidote to a overly connected technology filled, uh, overly stimulated life is to go outside. And that's such an obvious thing that it makes me really optimistic that people are going to, that most a lot of people realize that and it will start to be acted on. I think it's the natural kind of countercurrent to the way we're going, even though there's no stopping technology and I wouldn't want to. It's just, you know, we've always got this other opportunity. You know, yeah. outside. It's figuring out how, how to make that balance. But as per, as technology progresses and, you know, you figure out a way to, to manage that. And then also, like you said, like get outside. <laughs> and I think over yeah. time, like you're saying, it will become a lot more obvious that that is, uh, a great way to re-energize yourself. Cause like that, I think that's why most people do it. At least that's why I do it. I just, it just makes me happy, <laughs> you know? Sure. Yeah, Being exactly. Outside. And even if you don't know, like, you know, it just, you don't notice it until a couple of days later when you're like, Oh, I can think clear again. And there's science behind that. Let's not get into that because yeah. you know, as you probably <laughs> figured out, I can, I can, you know, put me with a beer around a campfire and we can talk about this till the morning. Uh, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> I want to make sure we move on. Me as well. Um, all right. So, Let's talk about what, what would you say have been some of the biggest mistakes that you've made um, in regards to uh, lives in? Yeah. I apologize one second. Um, man, we've made a lot of mistakes. Uh, the, the nice thing is that my previous job, you know, we made a whole lot of, we made about every mistake you could in the book because we were doing it for the first time. So I got to learn a lot of that. To me, the biggest thing we've done, we spent, a, we spent a lot of time going after markets and products in the initial before we really realized that we could make an impact and make some of the best pants available and make one of the best fleeces available. You know, like you, you can't get back time. And uh, now that we've realized that we're really focusing on what we can and narrowing that, the, the entrepreneur's curse is wanting to do too much too fast. And it took me too long to, you know, not too long. We did it at the right time, but it took me longer than I would like to realize that we need to do just one thing at a time and do it really well. And then, yeah, so that, that's, that's just a more of a general lesson, but it really applied to things like our pants. Like we realized like I'm passionate about, <laughs> it's a weird thing to say, I'm passionate <laughs> about pants and I know a lot about it and I've spent a lot of time studying it and I can, and we can make something, you know, and I'm, I'm, I won't make something that I won't wear um, and that I don't have feel confidence that other people would like. So like, you know, we, we're, that's been a lesson that's been just ingrained into me. And as we go through this tech stars program, I'm really, it's heavy on my mind is like a lot you have to do, especially as a solo person running this kind of company and looking for you know, ex- not necessarily expansion for the sake of expansion, but at this point we have to expand to survive. So, you know, I'm going to focus on, on, on doing the things that we know we can do well and things that we can, you know, really make an impact on and stick there and try to resist the urge to be everything to everyone, because then you're no one to anyone. Very, very true. Where, where do you see uh, lives in, in the next year, five years, 10 years down the road? So, I mean, in a year, <laughs> it's such a, I love these questions. In a year, uh, I really see it's expanding fit and material options for the Flex Gamma's pants, you know, diving into right now, like I told you all the reasons that we did the cotton based. There are 
know, a hundred percent, hundred and ten percent valid reasons to do, you know, something like a nylon double weave with some spandex similar to like, you know, what you'd see from uh well, I don't know, other things out there. And then uh but taking our own spin on it and, and putting our warranty on it and then expanding fit options for those things. So right we chose a more slim fit. Uh not everybody's gonna it's not everybody's preference. So, you know, expanding fit options and then, you know, after that uh, or, you know, along with that, we've had this idea of being a direct to consumer company, um, for a lot of reasons that are, you know, you can Google and find out probably, you know, along with, you know, expanding, you know, diving deeper into the products that we really feel like are, are our strong suit, uh, potentially bringing on, you know, specialty retail partners in there because the outdoor industry is one of those brick and mortar industries where, uh, people still go to the store to find knowledge. And when they go to the store to find knowledge, and, I, and I'm talking about you know the good ones out there, which most of them are, I think, uh, when they go to that store to find knowledge and guidance, they find employees that actually know what they're talking about and are passionate about the fields that they're you know in and and know the know what they're talking about. They know the gear to use. And so with that, you know it's been on my mind a lot that um, I know great people that own stores, great people that are buyers, great people that are employees, a lot of my friends, even some family. Um, that work there and, and I've been really it's on my mind to potentially work with those and, and really, you know, support the part of the industry that I think is helping us drive growth. Uh and that may don't hold me to this. This is a startup, but you know, it's the way it's been on my mind in uh five years really. And I think it's on you said that like, you know, just basically beyond one year, I'm looking to bring on help. You know, I'm looking to bring people in that share the values that that I share and, and share the values towards that our company puts out in our mission and can really help me on, on one of several areas, including, you know, uh, some more product development, some more, you know, operations and marketing and, and people that share those ideas and really want to be a part of something like this that also have, uh, you know, skills and are hard workers. So that, that's, that's been on my mind a lot and, uh, thinking, you know, really who those people are and how to, how to attract them here and, and do that. So, yeah. Who knows? After that, I don't plan past that. (laughs) (laughs) As we know, it changes anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, Andrew, I I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast and share your story and and the mission behind uh, Lives in Designs. Um, And if anyone's listening between uh, February 12th and March 12th, you can actually enter to win um, some gear from Lives in along with a ton of other products from up and coming brands in the outdoor space. So you can head over to readyitty.com for your chance to win. And again, Andrew, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, come on the podcast and share your story. It was a blast. And no problem. Thank you. I'm going to, I'm going to try to pull my head back down from the clouds here. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to humor me on some of these things and really talk about this stuff. And, and also just for the help, you know, it's hard to get the word out effectively about what we're doing. And, and I think there's people out there that like it that, you know, will like it. And this is, this is really helpful. And I really appreciate y'all. If you enjoyed today's podcast episode, then we would be incredibly appreciative if you could log on to iTunes and leave us a quick review. This really helps us get noticed by other podcast listeners like yourself. And if you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, then please share it along. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Ready Aid Podcast. We'll catch you guys next week.